some unsuspecting podcast listener. <laughs> <laughs> and the people over here are going, what is wrong with these people? Okay, so before Joshua gets up, let me go ahead and uh, once again say good Shabbos. It is really such a privilege and a blessing to have you in our home, and I don't say it enough. Um, you guys are always so gracious, thinking we're going out of our way. We're going to pray anyway. We're going to talk about the portion anyway, but now I get to do it with Judah. That's cool, right? There it is. That is cool. So um, thank you. Thank you for coming and participating and being a community and taking care of one another. I want to remind you again that uh, Joe is not 100%. He may only be 97%. I don't know, but, you know, I'd like to see him, you know, sprinting and doing stuff like that. And I think sprinting would be a death knell. And I don't, you know, so... Let's, uh, let's keep him in prayer and, uh, and keep everybody that's anybody in prayer, all right? So uh, about two months, month and a half, we start looking at Purim. And a month after that, we've got Pesach. So you're going to want to start thinking about that, right? So we've got some, hopefully we'll have time for the men to uh, come together on a Tuesday night. Yes, this is your first warning. The men will come together on a Tuesday night. I'll give you plenty of warning. And we are going to discuss Bechot uh, Ta'anit. Bechot, Bechor. We're going to talk about the fast of the firstborn. And it's Bechor Ta'anit. Bechor Ta'anit. So, fast of the firstborn. Should, uh, should Greg fast? He's adopted, you know. Did he open the womb? He doesn't know. He's the only guy I know with that name. How about this guy? How about me? Now, we're not going to get my brother Fred involved, who seems to know more about my mother's pregnancies than I do. But different. We could story. Skype him in. We could Skype him in, but it'll just get into a little family feud. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, we're going to talk about who should fast, why you would want to fast, why you wouldn't want to fast, who should not fast, since... And at any given moment, there's, God bless you, somebody pregnant in our community. Oh, look, there she is. By the way, are we down to like in the 20s for days now? 19. 19 days. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. And it is, and it is a man. Yes, it is. A small a man, man child. child. Oh, yes, a man child. So, um, who was it? Uh, Greg reminded us uh, that when the, the young man child in your lap, is bar mitzvah. By definition, he will get the first aliyah every stinking week. So you'll actually have guys here that are going to pay him to stay home. This could be a money-making deal here. Good. So that's great. But not on the Sabbath. But not on the Sabbath. Pay, pay in advance. Right, right. PayPal timely. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Prepay. The prepay, right, that's right. So uh, if, I, if I could get you to uh, wave and say good Shabbos to Frederick, he's in Florida with his family, and he's looking for a Torah community like ours. I've told him to move. <laughs> um, we also have uh, Tom, and he's in Myrtle Beach because someone has to be. Hi, Tom. Uh, and then, of course, we have the McDonald family and the uh, Pitocks and everybody else that's up in Torah North. God bless you. Good Shabbos. Which is like the opposite of Myrtle Beach. Which is the opposite, yeah. <laughs> and our guys cannot complain about the weather ever, or David just, you know, slams them. It's, it's like, grow up. Come on, buy a coat. 
<laughs> I, I was complaining one day about having to go to the range. It was like 40 degrees outside. It would be 30 degrees with the, with the blowers on, pulling out the, the lead dust and all of that. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to have to get a parka on. And he goes, wear long sleeves. <laughs> so we get him on the Wednesday uh, lunch and learn with us. He's there in T-shirt. There's snow in the backyard. <laughs> He's a macho man. All right. So I think... That's it. I do want to share with you that a young lad who's being homeschooled by amazing parents um, has given me a closer look at the Mishkan. It's one of the term papers he had to write for homeschool, and he has uh, shared this with me uh, this morning. So um, I'll be a little quiet while you're doing your normal ramp up. I'd like to go through these three or four hundred pages. And uh, <laughs> if it's worthwhile, I may uh, ask the opportunity to present it to the uh, rest of the community. Um, I'll do that so it's not 16 octaves higher than normal um, on the thing. So, anything else? Anything that we need to know about? Good. Good. So, well, we'll be back. You may not feel like actually yeah, waddling at that point. Five days before the due date. Five days before the, yeah. So. We can go ahead and call it. We won't be here. <laughs> okay. So uh, we'll, uh, you know, the meal thing is just like a given. If there's anything you need, if there's anything you need, because by some weird chance he gets called out of town for work or something like that, you should have me on speed dial, right? If not, if you need anything at all, please. Um, let me know, and we'll, uh, you betcha, we'll, uh, we'll mobilize the entire community on your behalf. I think you did an outstanding job today, and you looked good doing it, too, which is, which is astonishing. Yeah, first month, uh, I'm trying to measure up to the uh, standard. <laughs> Thank you, Joshua. Bring us on. All righty. <clears throat> so this week we are in Parshat Terumah. Um, Tell you, this, this passage sometimes feels a little bit like it's out of place. It's in Exodus, but it really feels like it should be in numbers. You've got a lot of numbers and a lot of details. And if you were like me, you had a few moments this week where you were not up to your normal snuff, and you probably just sort of read through it rather quickly. You've read it before, thinking to yourself, yeah, 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 50 cubits this, 30 cubits that, something to that effect. But the thing about this portion is, the thing that I need to remember next year, there's always stuff to dig out because that's why it's here. If this is only about um, Hashem giving us the layout of what the Mishkan looked like for the one time that they had to build it, then there would be no reason for it to be here. One of the teachings of Judaism is the idea that everything in the scriptures, and this comes from Paul as well, is timeless. It's all for our instruction. It's all for us to grow. If it wasn't, then you and I could pretty much pick this portion up. I would say... Yeah, God told him to build this, that, and the other. There's a bunch of gold and scarlet thread and whatever else. And Shabbat Shalom, we'll see you guys in two weeks. But that's not what we're going to do because the whole thing about this particular portion is that God has chosen his wisdom to bury a lot of stuff in it. If that freaks any of you out, which I don't think it would because you're all like old school, hardcore people, but it, it, people, people far away might be a little frightened by that idea of digging into the, the lower levels of the meaning of scripture. Um, I think this portion is one of those ones where it's like, there has to be more. If it's just this, then I don't know what we're really, why it's relevant to our lives. But God doesn't give us things that are not relevant to our lives. 
So let's see what we've got in here. And actually, I'm going to start off the Midrash Rabbah, which uh, it gets quoted here in the uh, Chabad website. They had the coolest little drash. This is a good place to start, just to think about what this might mean to us. They say the Mishkan is the equivalent of the universe. Regarding the first day of creation, it says, He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, And you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Regarding the second day of creation, it says, Let there be a firmament, and let it divide between the waters and the waters. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, And the veil shall divide for you between the holy and the holy of holies. Regarding the work of the third day of creation, it says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, And you shall make a copper basin, and the base thereof of copper for washing. Regarding the work of the fourth day of creation, it says, Let there be illuminaries in the heavens. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, And you shall make a menorah of pure gold. Regarding the work of the fifth day of creation, it says, Let fowl fly above the earth. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, The cherovim shall spread out their wings upward. On the sixth day was created to inhabit and cultivate the earth was man. Uh, regarding the Mishkan, God says to Moshe, Bring near Aaron, your brother, to perform the service in the sanctuary. Of the seventh day we have it written, and the heaven and the earth were completed, and God completed his work, and God blessed, and God sanctified. Regarding the making of the Mishkan, it says, Thus was the completed all the work of the tabernacle, and Moshe blessed them. And it came to pass in the day that Moshe completed the tabernacle and sanctified it. I thought it was amazing. It's like, so if you just read the passage as fast as you possibly could to check that little box off, you missed that. And the cool part is, Hashem has put this in here because... What was the purpose of the tabernacle? It's created a dwelling place among us. What's the purpose of the universe? It's a dwelling place for Hashem. That's the purpose why we're all here. It's because God wants to dwell among us. God wants to be a part of our lives. He ultimately wants us to bring him glory. And to, and to this is stealing from an idea of, of uh, Hasidism, to bring, in a sense, Hashem into the lower worlds, to bring Hashem's glory here. We sanctify God in this world, and that allows, in a way, it, it allows a resting place for him here. And that's one of the things that also the commentaries talk about. This idea that God says, I will dwell among them is not I will dwell in their midst in the sense of like I'll be in the middle of it, kind of like this table is in the middle of the room, but rather I will dwell in them, which we totally get from uh, Shaul, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling. Paul actually goes so far as to say you are a temple of God. And the idea he's, is not a new concept. It's not an idea that he's like pulling out of some you know weird Christian mysticism. He's pulling it from Judaism, because he's part of Judaism. And this part of that concept is that God dwells in us because God is ultimately going to be sanctified in us as well. So if we are a, a holy place, then God is able to be in our, literally in our midst of ourselves. Yes, sir. Um, so it says, in the, it says in the beginning, you know, um, Hashem instructs Moshe to speak to the children of Israel that they should uh, separate from me a contribution. The word telema basically means contribution or offering. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and the root of the word is the, is the root room, which means to, to lift up. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. it, so uh, a lot of times in the old, in older English Bibles, KJV and whatnot, they translate as a heave offering, you know. Right. It's the same uh, word that's used for that. Right. So, oh, nice. It's the idea of kind of lifting it up to Hashem, and it becomes sanctified. But he, he goes on to say um, that whoever will um, voluntarily, willfully give a tetelma, let you know, let them give it. So it's not a requirement. It wasn't 
you know, it's you know, nothing happens to you if you don't. But if you are moved by God and mm. you want to willfully contribute, in other words, I think he even says, uh, I think the word even is, uh, whose heart motivates uh, him? Uh, so, so, yeah, whose whose heart shall donate is what this particular translation <laughs> I'm looking at. This is a good translation, by the way. Um, <clears throat> says so. It was. It had to be from the heart, which is, you know, which from there we can learn ultimately that if these contributions are what was used to construct the tabernacle to bring the, she the Shekinah into us, as a, as a it it has to start here. Right? Mm -hmm. It has to be a willful, mm -hmm. heartfelt contribution. It can't be. Demanded, it can't be coerced, it can't be under duress, it right. has to be um, voluntarily an act of your will and an act of your heart to do it. Right, and Julianne and I have been talking this year about the concept of being those people. You know, there's a lot of things that, that God gives us, He gives us a lot of mitzvot that are very black and white. You do X, you do this, you do that. But one of the things that Judaism also has, if you, if you pray this in the prayers, in the, in the, in the Siddur, there's a whole bunch of mitzvot that don't tell you how much to do. Charity is one of them. How much study you should do is another one. And there's a lot of things in life where God doesn't make it black and white. You don't have to do this, but it's a good thing to do. And being those people means sometimes doing the things that are good things to do when they're not required. So if you didn't do them, you weren't sinning. It's not like, oh, I didn't invite so-and-so over for dinner tonight. That was, you know, that was a sin. It wasn't a sin, but maybe you missed out on an opportunity. Maybe you could have been that person. So, you know, it's like, uh, in a sense, it's this idea of doing good that's not required. And as part of that, this is one of the things that we're talking about, this idea that, like, if you are that person or you want to be that person, you start doing those things when they're not required, you become that person. That becomes your definition of who you are. You do the things that are above and beyond because that's what you want to do. And, yes, sir? Well, just to clarify, charity would be required because the oh, things yes. in the sitter are basically like the, there's no quantity that's defined. The fact that you're doing them is a, should be a given. Right. It's just that you don't know how much. Like the corners of the field, right. charity, you know, stuff like that, yeah. Right, no, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right, absolutely. No, the, the, the idea that I was conveying there was the concept that like the amount that you do is not specified. Right. Yeah. So you could argue to yourself, I've already given my 10%, I'm not giving another dime. Right. Or you could be those people who are very generous and outgoing. You know, they give a lot or, or not. I mean, that's the thing, it's not right and wrong anymore. It gets to the idea of who do you want to be? And that goes back to your point about the, the heart. It's like, this came out of who they were. They chose to be those generous people who wanted to make Hashem so important to them. And because of that, that flowed out. As Hashem, as Yeshua said, that what comes out of the mouth comes out of the heart. It's like, that's who they became. Now, at the same time, that's who they were. At the same time, you want to be that person, then you can start acting like that person. Then it kind of seeps in, hopefully, that's, that's the goal, and then comes out. Not to be hypocritical, but rather because your desire is, that's what I want my heart to be. Yes, sir. And the sages say that if we do the mitzvot, eventually, even under just knowing that we have to do them, eventually you're doing them and your heart changes and you want to do them. So it's a good thing. Um, just by way of reminder, um, every quarter we give money to widows as a community. Um, so if you've not had the opportunity to participate in that mitzvah, um, 
either send it yourself or send it over to me and we will send it on your behalf. Um, it's, it is something that Bellator is and has been for quite some time actively doing. Hmm. That's a good thing. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, the idea that the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the later temple are the representation of an entire universe <coughs> is m much more evident today with computer technology. And, and when we start looking at numbers, like numbers, math, and we see that numbers, and we see that numbers are used in this portion like a lot, it should pique our interest and go, <coughs> is this similar to what we... Today we have computer compression, where a word can be represented as a number, mm, okay. thereby reducing its size and space. And therefore its transmission time. Right? And that means a book can be reduced to a single number. That's what compression is. So the entire universe actually can theoretically be reduced to a single number. Mm. Um, I mean, it's huge, but the point is the entire universe... And what we're here seeing here is we're seeing these numbers. This is not a single number. These are lots of numbers. These numbers and the description of the of the of the items that are being used. The, the, the not only the not only the quantity but also the makeup of you know, this type of wood, this type of gold, but also the properties of it. This should be a single piece. This should be hammered. This should be stitched. So the properties as well, we, I mean, this is an explanation of, I mean, everything that we even don't understand about physics, even quantum physics, is represented in theory when we read this. So when you, have, you talk about this represents the world, <clears throat> traditional Christianity has, 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 a, has a concept by, where, where they use types. They say, well, the tabernacle is a type mm -hmm. of the Messiah. And it is. There's no question. But it's, but it's more than that. And that's, and that's what we should be getting from this. It's more than that. They actually physically built this tabernacle following God's instructions, which means that, in a way, they actually physically took the pattern from the mountain and represented it in time and space. Mm -hmm. right? And in the process, they, they didn't just make a copy like we think about copies. Like, if I take a this and I make a photocopy of it, it's always less than perfect, right? But the two to the other could be put on the table together. There's also types of copies that actually, in data, data processing, where you copy data, and the properties transfer. And if you change those properties on the one side, they change on the other side as well. The copy that was made, this tabernacle, is not merely a mirror of what was there. But it's it, if the tabernacle in the heavenlies could change, this would change as well, hmm. and vice versa. Now, take that concept, tabernacle, and then the later temple. And now you say, as Paul says, we're a temple, but let's go even further. Messiah is represented in this. What we see then is we see that if you destroy one, you destroy the other. Mm -hmm. The properties of one are directly copied to the, to the other. It is a, in data processing, it's a, it's a deep copy. It goes all the way down, and if you change it on one side, it changes on the other. And it's, it's, it can never be unlinked. Hmm. We are reading not just a symbol of Messiah. We're reading about him when we read these things in a form of compression, as it were. And data talk when we you know, take all the, all the space out. That's what we're seeing. This is, still has a lot of space in it. It's got tons of space in it. You know? It could be compressed even more. And here's the answer. It can be compressed into one single person. Amen. Yeshua, the Messiah, 
is the person being expressed on these pages when you read it. That's exciting. And he is ultimately Hashem in our midst, which was exactly the purpose of this in the first place. Which then makes you wonder, well, he had a temporary tabernacle that traveled around. And then he had a temple that was destroyed. And now we're going to have a temple that will never be destroyed. How does that work? How about the presence of God in the world today, or in that in, in days past, was expressed almost give and take. Hmm. Then it was expressed in a permanent way. That was destroyed. Hmm. Well, not really destroyed, because I still go put my hand on it right. when I go pray in Jerusalem. And then it will be res restored in the same place, in the same way, that will never be destroyed. And be better than before. Yeah, it's almost this idea that kind of goes back to that um, Paul was talking about prior, that at one point in time, um, that one translation gives God winked at idolatry in the sense that, like, um, man was kind of left, not left alone, but in the sense that, like, God, God shared truth. But he focused it in this one particular family group for the most part because the rest of the universe really wasn't all interested. And then um, there, was, there was a time Messiah started this, this, uh, this global effort, if you want to say, a campaign, so to speak, to spread truth around the world. Israel was supposed to be doing that already, and they'd been doing little pockets of it here and there. Shlomo did a pretty good job of that. But God was like, he, it's like the campaign was expanded. This was a significant change with the advent of Messiah and then his death and resurrection and then the disciples then were sent literally across the planet to go and share the gospel. And it worked. And as you point out, now there is almost that sense that like it has been, it, it's like before then there was this mobile tabernacle where it was sort of in the midst but not exactly settled. And then you get that, set, that, that firming up, so to speak. The firming up has been lost to us. It's hidden, really, is a better way to put that. Mm -hmm. And it is coming back, and at that point, everyone's going to know. This is the only place you can go. Jeremiah must have been in the Right, exactly. This is the only option that you have. Um, one of the things about this passage that's interesting, I hope that as you're reading it, you look for the things that are weird. Because one of the beautiful parts about the passage is just stuff that just doesn't make sense. Or this should catch your eye. For example, if you are looking at this passage, um, one of the things I absolutely love about Scripture um, is the concept, and Rabbi Foreman loves using these all the time, the idea of chiasms or chiastic poetry, which, just as a quick recap, is the idea that there's parallels in, in, the, in the ideas. So you get like A, B, C, C, B, A. The A's match up, the B's match up, the C's match up. Well, oftentimes in the chiastic poetry system, there's a piece in the middle that doesn't match up, and that is supposed to be the, uh, the centerpiece, the focus. <laughs> And it's almost kind of like if you were a kid and you had those little books, and it's like, what's wrong with this picture? And it's like, you've got a cat with a red hat and a cat with a red hat, and this cat is wearing green shoes, and that cat's wearing blue shoes. So what's wrong with the picture? The shoes. There's something missing here but the shoes, and that's what we're focusing on. So in this particular portion, if you read through the beginning of this passage and you got to verse 22, you see there's something like, almost like this weird... Um, uh, verse 22 is almost like a summary in reverse of the, or actually not really in reverse, well, kind of in reverse, sort of, um, of, the, uh, of the previous passage. And you get, verse 22 begins with, is there I will set my meetings with you. But that's not in there. Let's start from the end. Everything that I command you, everything that I shall command you, shall the very end of 22. Now if you flip back, where's the last time we saw God making a command to the children of Israel? 
it was in verse 9. Like everything that I show you, the form of the tabernacle, the form of all the vessels, so shall you do. So you get like this parallel, right? Command you, everything I show you, you shall do. So there's this balance. Then the next step back, um, the Cheravim on the Ark of the Testimonial Tablets. Well, what was the right... Um, we, uh, we got another passage there with the, the Cheravim that matches up. You get the cover from atop the cover. That matches up to the idea of the Ark. The one piece that seems to be kind of sitting out by itself is this meetings. We also get that idea of the sanctuary for me that might dwell among them. So these are parallels of this verse at the end, the beginning of the Ark of the Covenant passage, and at the end. Almost kind of like a, bo- a bookend, a summary of the, the Ark of the Covenant. What's odd about this passage is that that doesn't reappear. We don't get this summary very often. So my contention is that this summary is interesting because it highlights the purpose of the Ark, which ultimately highlights the purpose of the tabernacle. Mm. Because the Ark was the centerpiece. The Ark is the piece in the middle that gets that is the focal of the, the, the meaning. But why is it the focal piece? The Ark is the focal piece because it's about meeting with God. But there's another piece that we oftentimes miss. You know what, Pat, what shows up three times in the discussion of the Ark? It shows up is the Ark of the Testimony. Put the Testimony of the Tablets in there. Everything, uh, put the testimony tablets in there. The Ark of the Testimony. Well, what's the testimony? The testimony is the commandments. Uh, we, it's Ark of the Covenant is the language that we use. But what really is the covenant? The covenant, the reason why it's called the Ark of the Covenant is we took the Ten Commandments in the tablets, put them in the Ark, so it was the Ark of the Covenant. But the covenant was really just the mitzvot that we were asked to keep. And so there's this... There's we agreed these, to keep. We agreed to keep. So these two pieces come together in the ark. The ark is about meeting with God, and the ark is about obeying God. And this really is a summation of life. Mm-hmm. This is the centerpiece. This is the whole point of why we're here. Our goal is to obey God and to meet with God. And the oaths don't really work separate from each other. You can't meet with God if you don't obey God. And if you're obeying God without meeting with God, then you're really missing the point in the first place. So these two are harmonized in the concept of the ark, which is why I think that the Ark almost gets like a special piece. It's almost like there's a pause in verse 22 where God almost wants like, to stop and say, now we're going to have more. But really, this is the point of what I'm going to tell you. So make sure you do this part right. Let's summarize just to make sure we're all on the same page. And then we'll move on to the rest of the, of the tabernacle. Yes, sir. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to read this real quick uh, that Micah wrote um, because... His point, he's going from Rashi and Rambam and so forth, um, but his point on the Ark of the Covenant is is pretty cool. Uh, so bear with me as I uh, correct the one grammatical mistake I found was the dangling participle in the first paragraph. But we can talk about that later. Anyway, Nushkan uh, is still one of the most impressive buildings of all time. However, a closer look will uncover interesting facts, most of which we already know about the Mishkan comes from the Bible. More facts, however, come from people other than Moshe. The sages, such as Rashi and the Rambam, give us another basis to study with. The outside of the Mishkan tent was built of beams, sockets, bands, and fabrics. The beams, now he's going to be describing this and embellishing from the scripture based on these sages. So some of this is pretty cool. I'm actually making note of three or four things that I read already. So, uh, <clears throat> The beams are 20 feet tall, built of acacia wood and covered in gold. Each beam was put in two socks. Two beams were secured together by a gold band at the top. There were a total of 48 beams around the tent of the Mishkan. The corner beams were attached to the side beams by bars that went through rings attached to the sides of the beams. 
The housings were half pipes to cover the bars where the rings were not placed. The golden altar was positioned right behind the entrance screen. It was used to bring incense up in smoke. The golden altar was built out of four panels made of acacia wood and covered in gold. The horns of the altar were square boxes. Each of the panels contained half a horn on it. There were two rings, each one on a corner, containing a stave made of acacia wood and covered in gold. These staves were used only for carrying the golden altar. Twenty ounces of incense were burned on the golden altar for a regular incense offering. When the Kohen offered the incense on the altar, no one was allowed to be in between the Mishkan and the copper laver. The menorah was the main source of light in the Mishkan. The menorah was made out of 57 pounds of gold. I've, I've never even seen a pound of gold. <laughs> in fact, I have never seen more than about a ring's worth. One piece. Gold. One piece. Oh, one piece. Yeah, one piece. Now, it was hammered into shape by, by Betzalel, the chief architect of the Mishkan. The base of the menorah was hollow and had the center stem rising out of the middle of the base. The menorah was 72 feet tall from the base to the top of the center stem. There were 22 goblets, 11 knobs, and 9 flowers in the entire menorah. The wicks of the menorah, the wicks, were strips of cloth from old priestly garments. Hmm, I didn't know that. They were positioned using tongs to face the center wick as to cast light in the direction of the face. Tongs are made of tongs. Tongs are made of tongs. <laughs> the table of showbread was used for holding the holy bread of God. The table was 48 inches long, 24 inches wide, and 36 inches high. The table was completely covered in gold and had a golden diadem around the edge of the table, representing the crown of royalty. Each loaf of bread was baked in a specially shaped pan or dish. A fistful of frankincense was put in a flat bottom spoon, as referred to in Exodus 25, verse 29. The supports rose out from the floor and extended several feet above the table. These supports were covered in gold and had small pegs sticking out from the sides of the supports. Rashi maintains that these supports were either boards or poles, and resting on the pegs were the tubes. The tubes were gold and shaped like half pipes. On top of the tubes rested the dishes with the bread of, surfa of surfaces in the dish. The bread of surfaces started out as a slab of dough, 20 inches wide and 40 inches long. The <laughs> dough was then folded up into the shape of an open box with two sides. The extra bits of dough were stuck onto the corners on the sides, protruding inward to look like the horns that were on the altar. <laughs> the bread was then baked and put on the tubes for storing the bread. There were 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The bread was then arranged on the table with the spoons full of incense, frankincense, in between the two loaves of the bread. I didn't know. The Holy of Holies was a perfect box, 15 by 15 by 15 feet. In the middle of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was 60 inches long, 36 inches wide, and 36 inches tall. The walls of the Ark were 2 inches thick, and the floor of the Ark was 4 inches thick. The Ark was actually made out of three separate Arks. That's what I did. <laughs> then you started talking, so I had to reread it three, four times, just to catch it. Gold, wood, gold. The ark was made of three separate arcs, two golden and one wooden. Hmm. The smaller golden ark was fit inside of the wooden ark. Okay. And the wooden ark was then fit inside the larger golden ark. Now, I never thought of it like that. I thought they built a wooden ark and somehow took gold and hammered it out onto wood. Gold doesn't stick to wood, hmm. inside or outside. So the idea that there were three actual arcs, we make one out of gold, we put the wooden one inside, and then we build another 
golden one and put it inside the wooden one is very cool. <laughs> then a rim of gold was put on the top where the arcs met. Thus the ark was completely covered in gold. Betzalel put a golden diadem around the top of the ark. Then he cast four gold rings to put on the corners of the ark. Betzalel made two wooden staves covered in gold, but he flared the ends so as not to allow them to be removed <laughs> from the ark. Oh, that's why oh, man. See it. That's it right. It has the folds because it could take the folds out. I like that. Yeah. He then made Heruvim of hammered gold. Check this, it's the last cool thing. He took a large piece of pure gold and struck it in the middle with a hammer in order to make two columns of gold protrude at the ends. Okay. Wham! <laughs> All right. He hammered out two caravim, each with the face of a child. One with the face of a boy, and the other with the face of a girl. Afterward, Bezalel put the Ten Commandments into the Ark, along with the Torah scroll Moshe had written. The Torah gives us commandments, laws, and a basis to study how to use these laws. The sages, such as Rashi, give us insight into how the Mishkan was built. All these interesting facts give us an opportunity to find out more about how the Mishkan actually. That was cool. Put that mic well on. I'm a mathematician, by the way. Yeah, it must be. Well, with words as well. And it's really cool that we talk about all the different pieces that go into it because actually, several of, the, of those pieces it gets derived in a lot of the commentaries about what's going on here. So, like, for example, talk about the Ark. You mentioned the three gold the arcs because there's gold on the inside, gold on the outside, and it's made out of wood. And made out of wood. What does the say? What do the sages play off of this? They say that a real Torah scholar, a real righteous man, will be the same on the inside, the gold on the inside, as he is on the outside. Mm. It's like that's that's a simple concept, but it's cool to have that picture in your mind. So when you're thinking about, you know, how you act at home versus how you have to work, or how you act inside, or what you would like to be thinking to yourself versus the the. the the wonderful, beautiful person that you're presenting to everybody else, it's like, make sure that those line up. they got to be the same. Yes, sir? The, the Carol Beam is interesting because uh, it's interesting in a couple of ways. One is, we have a commandment, you know, in, in Parsha Yitro, do not make graven images. Right. And yet, on the very throne of Hashem on this planet... There are two graven images of the Kerovim. Mm. So there's kind of a paradox there. Um, and the sages say that that when Betzalel made them, it, they they had to be made with exact to exactly as prescribed. If they were even slightly different, it would have been idolatry, right? Mm. But, because they were made exactly the way after the pattern that God gave Moshe, uh, they were kosher, as it were, I guess. But but it's interesting that you bring out, Micah, the fact that the cherubim that are facing each other um, had, are like had like children, small the face of a small child. In fact, the root of that of the word keruv means uh, baby like, um, according to. According to the sages, so, so, when you think about like in uh, Catholic, you know, Catholicism or whatever, 
you know, the little baby angels yeah. floating around, oh, like here. the Cupid kind of thing. They're not too far off. They're actually, uh, they're actually kind of taking that cue yeah. from Judaism and from the description of the Cherubim, who were like, um, like, like the face of an innocent yeah. uh, young infant or child. Um, and it's interesting that they bring out the fact that one was the face of a boy and one was the face of a girl, because if you think about a a newborn, right? If you have a if you see a newborn, yet you know, just a few days old, a week old, two weeks old, oftentimes you don't know unless they're dressed in blue or pink. Mm-hmm. You don't <laughs> know. Especially if you're a guy. <laughs> you don't know when you look at a newborn. Yeah if they're male or female. It's not until they begin to mature do they then take on certain traits of one gender or the other in terms of their outward appearance and their face, et cetera. So, um, and and there's a a, a kind of a unique idea there in that um, the Herovim on the one hand represent that childlike pure innocence. The kind of innocence that we had in the garden before uh, before we ate of the tree of the knowledge of the good and the evil. Um, and, uh, but yet, at the same time, the Herobim are elsewhere pictured as sort of fierce and holding flaming swords. And you know, so they, they, the, Her- the Herobim have this on the one hand, they have this ability to be a picture of pure innocence before Hashem. On the other hand, they can they can transform, as it were, into something that's quite, you know, awe-inspiring mm-hmm. and, and fearful. Um, but it's it, it's really speaking to that pure innocence, mm-hmm. that childlike innocence before Hashem. It's kind of pictured in the Herobim with the childlike faces. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, especially because you mentioned that linking it almost to children. Because yeah, the other the other ar- argument as to where the root for heru comes from is the same word for sword, right. same word for like destruction. Yeah. It's the same. It can be uh, either one's a paradox. Yeah, it's almost like this this interesting balance. Um, of course, that that does remind me of Yeshua's comments. But I'm gonna before I do that, I'm gonna take my mom's talk because she might be thinking the same thing. So I'm not, but I'm okay. interested to see where you're going. I was just gonna say, sometimes reading all this just kind of does go over my head occasionally. We have some fabulous books from Institute. Oh, yeah. Institute. If anyone uh, doesn't have them, wants to borrow them, I'll be happy to bring them one week. Just let us know. Uh, they have fabulous pictures in them and, and really helps you to gain an understanding of what you're reading. And I've probably got all the same ones. <laughs> I think they have them too. Are you going to talk about Kesha? I will in a minute, but we'll. They, they well, actually, no, I, I'm actually, I won't, but I'll let you do it in a minute. Okay. They also have a piece of software that tries to represent it, uh, and that is extraordinary as well. Mm. Uh, you just, I, I guess inspiring, awe-inspiring is, is, is my end result is wow. And if you've been to Israel, a lot of times you get to see the large menorah, mm. and I, I've never been able to see the, the, the garments and what yeah, they've made, yeah. but they've got it all ready to go. I mean, we're just... We're just waiting for you know for a, a large grenade or something. <laughs> well, one aside from that, we were reading this at home today. Judah mentioned the fact that this convinces him that um, the Israelites did build the uh, pyramids. pyramids and all their intellectual things. Ah. But 
we were talking about the fact that they were shepherds in Goshen, and yet here are people who have the tools which they really shouldn't have had and have the, the knowledge and besides Bezalel that was given the spirit to do all these things. These are phenomenal works. They really are. That people Amen. are doing. They came to Egypt as shepherds. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. God's able to intervene there. It's interesting you mentioned, going back to the, the children thing, uh, this kind of reminds me of Yeshua's comments about like, let your, um, be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Almost that kind of that balance of like, sometimes you have to be the child, sometimes you have to be the sword. Um, and kind of learning that harmonization there. Because that, I think that's a difficult thing to, to learn, but it's, it's an important thing to recognize as well. One of the things about the, um, and i got a couple comments here, but real quick, on, on the Ark, one of the things that's really cool, someone mentioned that the, the staves don't come out. The Ark is unique in this respect. There are, every other piece of furniture has staves, but they came out, or they're able to come out, whenever they had it resting. Well, Lubavitcher Rebbe runs off of this, because he, he notices this, this is one of the things I mentioned earlier. Look for the things that's weird. So he mentioned, you know, this is a commandment not to pull the staves out. It's like, that's an odd thing. Why would you want to do that? And, um, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe has a really cool point. He says that the Ark represents a Torah scholar. And the Torah scholar, like the Ark, has to have that time alone with Hashem, that time where he's secluded, the time where he's away from the rest of the world. But the Ark with the staves in it was symbolic of saying the Ark was always ready to move. It was always ready to be mobile, to already move to the next position. He says the Torah scholar has to be like that. The Torah scholar has to be aware of the people around him or her that ultimately want, that, that are ready to grow, that are ready, that are seeking for Hashem, because he has to be the type of person who isn't just huddled up and quiet in this little room and no one's allowed to talk to him. He has to be a light. He has to be available to share that light with the people around him. And Yeshua seems to totally nail that one. Because you see him go off by himself, and when does he go off? In the middle of the night, because goodness gracious, there's no other time to do it. And he goes off and he prays, and he seems to be pretty focused. I mean, we get the, the, the Gethsemane prayers especially. He's very focused when he's praying. He's not distracted thinking about other things. But whenever somebody else shows up in the middle of his time away with, with Hashem, immediately, that, that set aside, he focuses on the person their needs. And I think it's really helpful, because I think that sometimes as, as people who want to study Scripture want to grow with our relationship with Hashem, especially for men in this room who have to work and do the things, and it's like we are, our time is precious, it becomes sometimes this thing where it's like, sorry, can't talk to you right now, can't help with the kids, I'm reading the Torah. You know, and it's like we have to recognize that, no, some, the Torah does sometimes take priority over certain things, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore the people around us. Like the Ark, we have to be mobile. We have to be able to have that time secluded with Hashem, but we also have to be available, ready to move at a moment's notice, because that is the broader mission that we have. So I've got my dad and Brock. So, dad on acacia wood. Oh, I was just going to point out that Hasidic says that acacia uh, is, is a word that can be, it, it comes from a root that means folly. <laughs> but, but there's two types of folly. There's the folly of intentional sin. That's folly. That's stupidity, right? It's like, I know this is wrong, but I do it anyway, and I know that it will turn out very badly. Foolish. Anyway. Heroin seems like real folly. Right? <laughs> right. Um, anything like that. Folly. Stupidity. And then, but there's also the idea of folly in the sense that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a suspension of belief. A suspension of reason, more importantly. Hmm. Because we use the word belief incorrectly, uh, the suspension of reason, and what they say is that the fact that the that the ark of the testimony is made of acacia and other things are made of acacia as well require a suspension of reason. 
because, and as I said, the word is, it means folly. <laughs> you know, it's like, how, you know, you should be saying, what, why? And, and the answer is, just because. <laughs> but when you think about it, you think about it, it's actually, it's, it's, it's the way that we operate as believers in this world. When someone says, I can't believe you believe what you believe, right? right? Uh, that to us is even more uh, firming of our belief. We, we find their disbelief to confirm our belief. Well, the you think about it. You think about the atheists, and you hear their arguments and go, yeah, that's just stupid. So it's almost the reverse. So, so what is folly to the world is wisdom mm -hmm. to those who follow God. What is, what is wisdom to the world is folly to us. I've heard that somewhere else. <laughs> so the fact that the tabernacle is made of acacia, we should be we should be embracing the fact that in the world it makes no sense. It doesn't. <laughs> and actually, it's funny that you mentioned that the Hasidics also play off of that idea of folly in saying that it's ironic that the holiest object in all of Judaism is made out of material goods that are equated with material wealth, like gold and all these gemstones and all these different types of stuff. It's almost like Hashem is saying... Let me take the what 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 is really foolishness, the, the foolishness of this world, and let's use it for godliness. I've heard that before. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing, and that's the thing is that oftentimes, and this goes back to the comment about the ark with the staves, we make the mistake of thinking that in order to be holy, we have to be monks. We have to go hiding in our little hermit shells, and we're going to be far away from the rest of the world. We're not going to touch the world because the world is scary and dangerous, and it can corrupt us. And what actually God is calling us is to be lights. God says, yes, you need to have that distance because you, want to be, you, you don't want to be corrupted by the world. But if you don't inter, inter, interface with the world around you, if you don't use, you don't elevate the world around you to the service of Hashem, then you've missed your purpose. You became something that was of no value instead of being of the value that God created you to be. So by using the, the, the foolish wood, so to speak, the acacia wood, it's almost like that symbolically saying, like, look, let's take the things that man equates with, with, with materialism and let's use it for Hashem, which is completely what we, are, what we are called to do. This goes to work, this goes to wealth, it goes to a lot of things. I've got Brock and then I've got Mr. Upham. Perhaps you should go first because he's probably going to. Okay, but Mr. Upham, then i got Brock. Mm -hmm. So this concept of folly and foolishness and stupidity... Um, Ariel Conoloro mentions that there's a word, there's a couple different words in the Hebrew for like foolishness or crazy or th those concepts. And one of them, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like, I think it's shtut or something like that is the word. Shtiot. Was it? Shtiot. Shtiot. I think it's right. Which actually has the word for Which actually has a gematria of 358. Which is the same gematria as Mashiach. <laughs> in other words, the whole concept of Mashiach and the whole concept of bringing a transcendent God that's outside of creation by definition and bringing him down into creation. Makes no sense. It may, I mean, it's, it's, it's above reason, right? It makes no sense. It's, it's crazy. Or in Yiddish, you know, it's Mashiach, right? It's yeah. like, it doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense. You're nuts. Yes, it's Shatur. Yeah, that's Messiah. Messiah. Yeah, that's right. But, but that goes back to the idea. If you ever watch a movie, one of the things that a good movie does is it gets you to suspend disbelief in the sense that you, you are willing to accept the reality that the, the director or the writer has presented as real. And as long as they manage to work within the reality that they've created, you accept all of it as being plausible, at least in that universe, right? So... Um, if you think about it, that, that's, not a, that's not only in relation to fiction. 
that's in relation to the world. If the way that you look at the world is we were here by accident, it's all about the, getting as much as you can while you're here, then you die and you get a big nothing, then your life is going to look very different from the person who believes you're created by a loving God, you're here with a purpose, and when you die, there's reward and punishment. But the, see, the thing is, we talk about suspension of disbelief, it's like your assumptions, what you accept as being possible, plausible, or true, depend on those assumptions, depend on which story you're willing to follow. And that's one reason why our goal is hopefully to chip away at the stories of the people that don't believe. It isn't so much that we have to argue with them and fight with them and come to, and prove them wrong, because in all likelihood, as long as they're clinging to that story that they've got, they're not going to budge, because their story gets totally rewritten if they accept some of your, your premises. So that's why God sent us out as lights. That's why we look foolish sometimes, but we wear strings attached to our clothes for no apparent reason to the people who are watching. But to us, there's a reason for it. And the goal is to make you stand out like a sore thumb, to hopefully get asked those questions. You respond with confidence. You respond with, with nobility and with, with the beauty of what God has created. And just like in Deuteronomy 4, all of a sudden those nations that think, man, that sounds really stupid, look at it later and they go, you know, taking a day off from work, that's a really smart idea. Maybe we should do that too. You know, and this idea of like, they start, and that starts to chip away at the assumptions. That starts to break down the, the core beliefs. There's a reason why in Judaism, practically everything goes back to two events. The creation of the world and the exodus. Because those two events are the foundation for all of our, our lives. If God is the creator of the world, then he has a right to tell us what to do. And the right to determine the, the divine truth for us. And if God saved us from Egypt, that means that he cares individually about us and that we are his people. And therefore we have a relationship with him. So those are the two pieces, and everything keeps pointing back to that. So that's our goal. Our goal is to be that light that points back to those things so that other people finally at the end of this long journey go, okay, I I, y'all are still really weird, but I, kinda, I got this odd feeling that maybe there's something more in this universe than what I've been living. And that's, that's, that's kind of what we're here to, to start working on. So anyway, I hope that's encouraging. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yes, sir. I have two things. Uh, first one's really short. Um, it's passages specifically like Tiramah that should be encouraging. I find it specifically encouraging because you read it and it reads like an instruction manual. <laughs> it's awesome. It's like, if I have I to build a tabernacle, I know how because right. this is where it is. And like, the detail it goes into, like because he's God. He knows exactly, oh, you're going to have a cubit left over here. So, fold this over. You can make angels out of that. But, but what's even cooler is when I read this, I'm comfortable because, you know, God is, is at, at some level logical, so he, he lays things down in a logical manner. But then I come here and I hear you talk about the mantra, I hear you talk about the like, meaning of this word, and it's like, well, yes, God is a logical. He can lay out things in a logical manner, but he hides meaning and even it's the cool. most seemingly right It's encrypted. So that's cool. That's That should be encouraging to everybody. Absolutely. The second thing that I wanted to uh, talk about was the the menorah was made out of one piece of gold. Which is ridiculous. And, and Michael pointed out that it's like 57 pounds or, or so. Well, if you remember way, way back when the Israelites left Egypt, God told them to basically plunder right. the Egyptians. <laughs> So Would you, you mind giving me some gold? I'm giving it to them. Well, uh, you know, it's here. Yeah, it was okay, we'll take it. But if you think about it, how many pieces of 57 pound gold do you think? That's right. <laughs> That's a good point. Was even in Egypt. I mean, I, personally, I don't think there was that many, maybe even just one. 
And that one person took it. And then, but that was... Ari, get the cart! They got a big block of gold! <laughs> we don't know what we're going to do with it. And melt it and That's true. one piece. Well, but although I maybe. guess he had to hammer it although maybe. one piece. But the, I guess the larger point I'm going for here is they were told to plunder, but they weren't commanded to necessarily. They were told to plunder, and then they were told to give up voluntarily. Right. And it was. It, it was. How did they go? But it was like, in order That's to make one of the central pieces in the tabernacle, the, the Israelites themselves had to voluntarily provide the materials for it. Yeah. Right. And and if they had not done that. They'd be in tabernacle. They would be in tabernacle. But that's why God chose them is because they would do it. Maybe. And it's right. almost like, I'm going to let you do this, but I know you're good. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. And that's, that's a really good point. I think it's so beautiful to think about. Like, this is exactly true with, with, our, with the money that God gives us. As men, sometimes we work really hard, hopefully. Um, and when you work really hard, you feel that ownership for the stuff that you have. I put in the effort for this. But what you just described is... Um, it's kind of like the idea in computer programming. I don't know why this is stuck in our heads today. But in a computer Sorry. program, sometimes you get like the, the input. You have the, the mechanism that changes the input, and you get an output. So you, this goes in. It has this you know, process done to it, and then it comes out this way. But um, So if you think about it, the, the, what they took from the Egyptians was the input. Then they owned it. They gave it back to God, and the output was the tabernacle. Yeah. But the funny part is... In the midst of that, it's almost like a Rube Goldberg device because at the end, what God was already, what already God had already had, he gave to the Israelites who then gave back to God. But God gave them the opportunity to give it, as you're saying. That's what's true for us. We only have the wealth and the, and the things that we have because God gave them to us. If God chose, you know what? Not getting that bonus this year. Or the economy's going to tank and they're going to give you a pay cut or lay you off or whatever, then you won't have anything. If everything we have was from God, so we give it back to God, it's not like we're being generous and sacrificing. We're literally just, okay, so in the process of time, we're simply giving you something that we already had, and we just happen to uphold it for, you know, interest-free for a little while, and now we're going to return it to you. And it's like, that's really all that's happening. So if you think about it, with the, with, in a way, generosity should be easy. It's like, this wasn't mine before. In fact, incredibly enough, God lets us keep 90% of the stuff. And all he asks for, well, okay, that's not exactly true, but you get my point, you know. So the idea being that um, it's not ours to begin with, so when we give it to Hashem, it should be, it should be of course. This I is... used to have a really wise pastor way back in the day. He used to say, you cannot afford not to give to God. <laughs> because if you, you know, the, the point, of course, being that the 10% or whatever it is that you give, you know, it's what brings the blessing on everything else that you are, right. are permitted to, to keep. And so you can't afford not to give to Hashem. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing is we, start, we have to stop thinking about it in terms of being finite. You know, one of the things that uh, Rabbi Lapin is so smart about is he says wealth is not a limited concept. It's not like there's only so much gold in the universe. Therefore, if you give up some of your money, there'll be less. He's like wealth is literally created out of nothing. People work hard. He tells a story about Uncle so-and-so. He takes trash, he fixes it up, yeah. he sells it, and they pay him more than he paid to get it. There's literally a creation of wealth. Working in the bank universe, one of the it's scary... I know. One of the scary things about um, banking is like the concepts of derivatives. You've never heard that term used around. The idea being, we'll take some money, and we'll take an interest rate for, for the money that we're loaning out, and then, because we're huge in a giant bank, we can get a better interest rate than before. 
so we'll offset these. You get a better deal with a lower interest rate. We're borrowing money that we're then sending out to you, so we get to split the, the difference, so we get to keep the leftovers. The point being, banks all the time are literally creating wealth out of nothing, simply because they're big and they're able to do this. The point is, though, that like that means there's never a limit. It's like seed. It's like God gave you corn that gives you seeds to plant more corn. God gives you money because he decided that that was what he was going to give you this time. So you don't ever run out of it. Yes, sir. Unless it's GMO corn, in which case <laughs> we're all hosed. So uh, a couple things. First, um, that's why that so many people were giving. So many people were getting in Egypt, and then so many people gave. Um, that's why the Sages so chose this particular haftar. The, the focus being, again, on the numbers of people that Solomon had that were willingly working and building the temple. An amazing number of people. Um, I just wanted to say the uh, two, two quick things uh, on, the, uh, on the wood. Uh, the sages say that this wood that we're using to build this with were trees that were planted by Yachon hmm. when he came to meet Joseph and moved to, to Egypt. The first thing he did is plant these trees and they cut them down when they left. <laughs> Taking the trees too. Yeah, I mean, that's just so cool. Because I was always wondering, you know, okay, this is one board and it's as long as my house. Who was carrying that? Why would they carry that out of Egypt? And where did they get a board that, well, if it's the family tree and we just cut, I'd be schlepping the board. That's amazing. This tree is older than your grandfather. Yeah. What if they planted it before they left? They just carried the trunk. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the story of the of the uh, of the dining room at uh, Oxford uh, that was made out of a certain type of oak that takes about four hundred years to grow. To grow. And that when they built that that dining room, they also planted a grove of oak because they knew that in 400 years that it takes to grow, it also decays. Ah. And so it need to be replaced. Need it need a new table. Very cool. Very cool. Everybody's going home and planting a tree tomorrow? <laughs> um, More trees, better. That's right. That was last month. This is Charlotte. We like trees. Just, just one last comment, and I'm going to do the math today. And I wish I could be you know, as, as cool as Rick and, and Greg and, and say, you know, I've already done the study and it's done, and, and this, is the, this is the bee's knees. Um, the Holy of Holies is internal dimensions is 10 cubits by 10 cubits. Mm-hmm. And I can think of at least two of um, Michael Rood's videos where he makes it clear that the Holy of Holies cannot hold the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant with the staves in it. If the staves go the right direction, which it describes, they have to go like a throne, pointing out. Not like the pictures in churches that have it going sideways. Yes, but either way, the room is square. It's 10 by 10. And the Ark of the Covenant is two and a half cubits long. you got to have some really, really, really long staves if it won't fit in 10 cubits. So I'm just encouraging everyone. I'm going to go do the math, but we need to take some of the things that we, we hear from other folks with a grain of salt and check it out. Hmm. Good point.
Especially when Greg does that Gamache. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go back to the numbers, though. There is some cool numbers here that's definitely true. And that is that the arc has all these half cubits. This, half, this by this half cubit. And uh, that's, that's unusual because the rest of these things are whole cubits. Whole cubits. A lot of whole cubits. So the sages comment on this and they say, what's the lesson we learned from this? And number one, that like the half cubit, the, our ability to grasp the Torah is always incomplete. We have to keep studying, have to keep growing, because you can never get the whole thing in one bite. The other thing is that in order to be a receptacle for Torah, which is what the ark really was, you have to be humble. You have to take that half. Not the whole one, but half a one. Because otherwise, you will not be able to properly hold those, those, uh, those testimonial tablets. So that was kind of a cool concept. Also, and along the, since we're talking about the ark, and we're getting ready to wrap up in the ark, but we'll, we'll oh, jump up there. Just real quick, the, um, one of the things that Micah pointed out, I don't know if you noticed, there's a crown around several pieces of furniture. And Micah noted in his little uh, drosh there that the, the crown around the, the, um, the showbread, table of showbread, was linked to royalty. And this, according to the commentaries, is because the showbread is a picture of, um, of, of wealth. It's a picture of, like, a pro- providence and blessing and um, lots of food, the types of things you associate with royalty. Now, the other um, side of this picture is the crown around the uh, altar of incense, which they note, because it's linked to incense, is like the crown of the priesthood. So this is the other crown that goes to that. God gave the Ark of the Kingdom to David, the Ark of the Priesthood, the crown of the priesthood to, to Aaron. The third one is the crown around the Ark, which is the crown of Torah. And they sages note that God did not give the crown of Torah to any one particular family because the crown of Torah is available to anyone who will come and take it. Ms. Gordon. I don't remember who mentioned something about um, other people understanding Torah or becoming observant, but uh, I was really encouraged this last couple of weeks because there was a girl, I'm just thinking that I can say this because it could be a real encouragement, <laughs> but there was a girl that used to be involved in an organization we were involved in with home education and she just she's in a family where they are not observant and they go to church and she said I'd listen and I'm thinking I don't know that that's I'm going to check that out and she'd check and go home and read and say that's not even accurate and I'd go and approach the pastor and ask him you know do you are you sure I'm, I'm not seeing this and he'd kind of get an attitude and she said when I saw that it made me think how many times have I come up against this possibly with this kind of attitude and he doesn't even know where his sources are coming from and this doesn't seem really sound. So she just has been studying and she finally went to her parents and said, I have to keep the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, this is not what they've been saying. And I did, you know, and she said, and so my father said the other day, can you show me what your understanding is and where you're getting your your um, information? And she said, gladly. So they're studying together, but it really was very encouraging. So what was the source of information? And I had nothing to do with it. So what was the source of information? The Bible? It was the Bible. Made, Shocker! Made, but she said even history, Dad. History yeah, also. Right. You know, for her. History. Yeah, it really is. So, um, 
I know that we are getting close towards the end of time, so we're gonna we're gonna move quickly. We are. Every moment that goes by, I know, close, close to the end of time. That's true. Amen. Um, it's, it's, it's not a difficult concept. Um, wow, look at the time. The uh, verse fourteen of chapter twenty-six uh, notes that uh, it, you've been paying attention. You've hopefully noted that the tabernacle is unique. God gives spelled out very specific instructions, like extremely specific instructions. Um, throughout the entire the entire time, which contrasts to things like "Thou shalt keep the Sabbath," which is a lot more vague and a lot uh, at least a lot more to the imagination. Whereas in the, in the tabernacle, not a lot to the imagination. This is going to be X number of cubits, can be shaped like this, can be made of this material. It's going to be you know one piece, two pieces, three pieces, whatever. What's interesting is in the middle of all of this, verse fourteen of chapter twenty six says, "You shall make a cover for the tent of red dyed ram skins and a cover of takash skins above." Period. The end. That's odd. I'm just going to say that right now. And I hope that that at least caught your eye to ask the question, why are we missing all the detail? In fact, the sages are divided. Is this two covers? One of ram skins and one of takash skins? Is it like a, a hybrid of the two kind of woven together? And what is a takash? Uh, what is a takash? Um, and, is it a small mouse? Uh, <laughs> Can we have takash for dinner last night? Yeah, so, uh, uh, hopefully not, because I don't think it's kosher. But the... Um, the, uh, so the question is, what's it, what's it stand for? I, I have a theory, and then I'm going to let Mr. Upland talk, because I'm sure he has a theory. My, my theory is that God in his wisdom sometimes gives us things that are a little more, not flexible, but almost kind of like, almost like he wants to give us a little, bit, a, little bit of, a little bit of trust, a little bit of like, not independence, but like, here's the boundaries. Here's, here's the principle I've already shown you. He already told him how to make the cover of goat skins. So now let me give you something else to work with, and you, based on what I've already told you, kind of figure out how I want you to do this. Almost like it's a little bit of a test, in a way. Um, kind of like, uh, I feel like sometimes that's the way it feels like when God says, love your neighbor. He gives us his boundaries. Here's the box. Loving your neighbor includes helping out with the donkey when it falls down, finding your neighbor's garment and, and holding on to it and giving it over to them. He, he, he outlines the box pretty well. And then he also says things like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, a big boundary, but the specifics sometimes are a little what's missing. And I think that part of that process is God wants us to spend so much time studying and digging in that we can come to get his heart. We come to start like, so if you've been reading this passage, you just learned what a, what a cover of the tent looks like with the goat skins. This is how it's shaped. So it's almost like God's like saying, will you take the bait? Will you do exactly what I just told you to do with this one? Because that's kind of like, almost like, can you learn from what I've already taught you to apply it to this other concept? But yes, sir. Another, another thought on this one. Yeah, so, so at least there's, there's, a, there's an obscure Midrash on this that's kind of interesting. But in the, in the Midrash, they, it's two skins, and, it's, and they liken it going back to the analogy that you started with of the creation, that this is like the separation from above and below, like the firmament that separates between the waters above and the water below. Uh, uh, But the the tachash um, is, there there is debate about what exactly it is, but but at least uh, in this particular midrash, they, they do believe it's some, it's the skin of some animal where this this particular skin or hide is waterproof, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, porpoise or dolphin is kind of the common one that's kind of thrown out there as a possibility. 
But the Midrash goes on to say, and it compares it to in the Messianic age, when Mashiach you know, comes and we have the what in the church would be called the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it's basically that Sukkot when we're all together again and we're celebrating um, what will be served at that meal. One of the things is uh, Leviathan, which is this sea creature whose skin is water repellent or waterproof. And it's, the Midrash says the Messiah will take the skin of Le- Leviathan and cover, use it as a covering over the, the, the sukkah, right? Because it's, you know, it, it, because it's waterproof, water-resistant or whatever. And they likened it back to this passage where the, tach, the tach, uh, tachin, the skins of this animal, um, are used as this covering from above to, to, you know, to protect against you know, water. So it's an interesting. It's an interesting. That's brush. cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, the Takash, according to one tradition, is a um, species that's no longer existent. It went extinct, and there was basically enough of them to build the tabernacle, and that was pretty much it. Like it's entire, literally. In fact, they actually it's a cool drash on this in the in the in the sages commentary. They actually say that every creature is created to serve Hashem. But in the in the confusion that exists in this world, we have good and evil in this world. It's sometimes difficult to see what that service to Hashem looks like, and it's definitely sometimes confusing to remember that we're created to serve Hashem. See, a takash is the picture of what it really looks like. They literally existed for one purpose: that was to serve Hashem. That was the only reason they were here, and it was so obvious because as soon as they were they were they did their purpose, they were gone. That was the whole reason, and so it's the idea that like they are a picture of what our lives are really about, which is we're here to serve Hashem, and that's it. Um, one of the things... <laughs> um, one of the things that we, uh, we, we, we talk, touched on earlier was the miracle element of this whole thing. They have all this stuff. They're building a tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness. Betzalel, he hits the cover and it splits into cherubim, you know, whatever else. It's this really cool, um, miraculous element. And in the, one of the drages that I thought was amazing, they're talking about the pole that goes in the middle. You know, it says you shall make a pole. And it says, oddly enough, this is verse 28 of chapter 26, the middle bar inside the planks shall extend from end to end. If you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, okay, so it's got to be, you know, 20 cubits long or whatever else. It's this pole that stretches all the way out. Well, the, the commentary basically looks at it this way. They go end to end. Well, the end to end is actually a U. It's not a straight line. It's the end of this point of the tabernacle up curving around the back, back over to this end. Those are the ends. So they say that this particular pole, they put it in place, and miraculously, it curved. It bent. <laughs> it just bent with the tabernacle, which if you think about it, is really kind of ridiculous, but kind of awesome at the same time. And it goes back to the suspension of disbelief. But the point that I'm trying to get at is, what did the people of Israel do? They gave the wood. God made it bend. This goes back to this midrash, which you'll think this sounds familiar, there's a midrash that says, if you will open up with faith, the act to open up the eye of a needle, I will drive a cart through it. This is Hashem speaking to the people of Israel. The idea being, if you will just do what little tiny bit you as a human being are able to do, I will make it beneficial. I will do the miracles that are necessary to make this work. If you will reach out for baby Moses, I'll make your arms stretch all the way out there into the middle of the river and pull him in. However you want to, you know, whichever midrash you're going with. 
But the idea is really cool that sometimes you don't feel like you can do what God wants you to do. Or you feel like whatever you can do is just incomplete. It won't really be very beneficial. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You do what I told you to do. I will make the consequences what they need to be. Yes, sir. And to that point, it's nice that Hashem always tells us what exactly we can do to open that eye of the needle because, like, it's the Torah. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that I was struck by is it's like, he didn't say, like, all right, tell the people of Israel to just bring things and then we'll just make it work. He said specifically what he wanted. They still had to bring them, but they had to follow the instructions of what to bring. Right. And so that's the beauty of yeah. like, the Torah is that you're supposed to have faith and you're supposed to act on it, but you're not needing to just like think off the top of your head what you could be doing out of right. faith. You know it's the Torah. How's, the, how's the spirit leading me today? I feel like I need to, I might want to do good for this person. Give generosity. Today I think that God is leading me to commit adultery. You know? No, no, no. This is not how it works. God gave you what to do and what not to do. One of the things that comes out of all these limited types of materials, um, and one of the points that, that, that comes out, it's kind of interesting, the materials change as you're going, I hope you notice that. We've got gold, we got silver, and the outside stuff is copper, um, which is definitely a, a, a declining level of, of value, which I think is kind of cool because if you think about it, if I, were, if I were building something, I would tend to think about the value going out, right? So like the goal is to make the outside of the house look amazing, so that everyone drives by goes, whoa, and the inside should look pretty good. And the very, very inside, maybe in your bedroom, where nobody ever sees, can be whatever. You know, you don't have to make the bed. No big deal. My wife is not this way. She is very, very astute and takes care of all these she's things. Holy. Yeah, she is. She's very holy. She's, she's learned from Hashem well here. Hashem builds the outside in, or the inside out. He goes the other direction. The gold is in the center, where no one is allowed to go but the priest once a year, and then the silver, and then the copper. And it's a very interesting approach because it, it really Judaism's got this idea too of this concept of modesty. It's like you want to almost do the opposite of what. So you have a lot, you don't flaunt it, you almost kind of hide it. It's like rather than putting it on the outside, you almost kind of like go closer into like you put the special stuff where no one sees, and then you kind of branch out from there. There also is this idea that it goes back to the, what's the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose of the tabernacle was not for the people outside. The purpose of the tabernacle was for Hashem. So it's, it's kind of like one of the things that um, my family has talked about, and Julian and I have talked about, this idea that like, God created stars in space that we still haven't found. He created fish in the ocean that we, we, we realized existed about 20 years ago, or yesterday. And it's like, it, logically, we think to ourselves, well, those are there theoretically, so that we go, wow, God is really smart. It's almost like he should have had billboards. Check these guys out. You think that's cool. But that's not what he does. He puts them off in different places, some of which you may never really uncover. Because it's about him. It was created for his benefit and his pleasure, not for ours. Are you and, saying we shouldn't put our name on buildings? Oh, well, um, um, but the idea being that, like, um, God, this goes back to the whole point. The point is Hashem. Not the point is us. We are here to serve Hashem. So the, the tabernacle reflects that by coming out the, fo- the, the, the best part is for Hashem. Yes, sir, and then I got another one. So to, to kind of dovetail on that idea, when you take the concept that we are a temple, right, mm. uh, according to both, well, start to say according to Judaism and according to Rosh Hashanah, mm. according to Judaism, <laughs> uh, we, are, we are a... Um, a, another microcosm, if you will, of that of that tabernacle, and ultimately, you know, Hashem wants to take up residence in us, right? 
So if that's true, then yeah. the, the blueprint that we have here, because uh, remember, everything we just read in, right now or in this portion, where is this taking place? In the heavens. Mm -hmm. He went up on the mountain right. and then God called him up. Right? Right. So Judaism right. says he actually ascended Show what I, see what I showed into you. the heavens and he saw the you know he saw everything the up real. there right so this whole description is happening up there but but it's a blueprint he's going to bring it he's going to come back down and he's going to repeat all the details again to all the people down here you know physically and and it's and it's not a it's i mean it is significant that hashem starts by describing the inter uh the most inner you know uh the inner sanctum or inner sanctity of the Mishkan first, which is to the extent you make the analogy that we are also um, a temple, then it's also giving us a cue, right? You have to start hmm. by fashioning your ark, and then from there you move to the holy place, your your menorah, your your table of showbread, and and all and your and your altar of golden incense and all the things that those represent. And then from there you move out to the outer courtyard, which is which is kind of this physical mm -hmm. body, if you will, where Which is waterproof. Where, where you know, mm -hmm. uh, where sacrifice really takes place. Mm -hmm. Right? And so if if we are going to learn to maintain a temple, this is very instructive for mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. And all the services that go on in the temple are very instructive for our lives. It, it was actually this. It was actually starting in this uh, parsha, basically to the end of the book, that fifteen years ago or so caused me to kind of start coming down this path of whatever we call this. Because <clears throat> I would read this, and I'm sitting there thinking, why is there's more details here about the construction of the tabernacle than there is of the creation. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, it goes on and on, basically to the end of the book, the furnishings, and then it goes into the temple, the the priest. And then it repeats it. And, it's it's repeats it, it. And, and I'm thinking, what is all of this about? <clears throat> but I knew enough to know that it's there for a reason. But nobody in the church had any any idea <laughs> mm. at all. And it was actually trying to dig into some of this to try to figure out how does this apply to me? Mm. Why is this here? Because it's got to apply to me somehow, or it wouldn't be here. Because, as you said at the beginning, all of this is is applicable to us. Um, and so, what I've learned, the little bit that I've learned, is that when I think about myself as a a potential possible mishkan for the shekinah for the shekinah. How does how should how does how should I maintain a mishkan? Here's my instruction on how to do that. And so when you take it, when you kind of look at it from that perspective, it's not just a lot of details and a, a historical you know, document about how what they did and how they built it, and you know, but it actually can take on that personal application that is is, is important. Right, and that's a good point because I think that we want to balance the inside-out thing because one of the things that we talked about before is like you want to change the inside, you change it by doing the mitzvot on the outside. And that is true. The danger there is that sometimes we make the mistake that we think we only have to do the outside and the inside doesn't matter. 
And it's about that process of getting them to, like the arc, to match up. And if we make the error of, doing, of saying, I won't do the mitzvot until I change the inside, that's a mistake. But on the other hand, if doing it on the outside is just about making other people impressed with you, or so that that way you fit in, or that other people will not see what's really on the inside, that's not what God's intention is either. That's fake. So you have to make sure, as you're pointing out, that the inside is where the real gold is located. And then it comes out. And it's going to come out, one way or the other, whether you realize it or not. But to your point, our walk is, is defined here and, and how we should be interfacing with God. This was our interface, that he might dwell among us um, and, and we're dwelling among other people. Um, what I realized a couple of years ago in reading this passage was there is an amazing amount of detail. There's an amazing amount of labor that went into this building. And then nobody but very select people got to see it. Mm -hmm. We're going to read in the next couple of portions. Oh, it's time to move. But nobody comes inside. we got to cover everything up. Then after everything's covered so nobody can see it, then we can take down the walls. And then we schlep it. We set up the walls first, bring in everything that's covered, and then we can uncover it. And isn't it the same with our, our private life, with our personal prayer life? Yeah. Isn't that what the Master was talking about? Not letting the right hand know what our left hand is doing. Yeah. What Paul was talking about when we go into that prayer closet, that we, we, we are praying and it's in private. Yeah. There, is, there is this relationship we have with him that is absolutely private. And it's precious, and it's golden, and it's priceless. Mm-hmm. And as you just said, that is what starts to resonate outward. And people see the result of me spending that private time, mm-hmm. that close, personal time. Uh, I remember uh, Charles Stanley, about 20 years ago, um, he, was, uh, he, he tended to pray, if I'm not mistaken, on his face on a, on a, on a, a platform, a board. He would just get on his face before God. That's what he did. That was his practice. His son came in one time. He was small. Chipped over. You know. um, but he was asked in an interview, can you, know, can you tell us what your, what, your, what your prayer time is like, you know, that, that, that private time? And he goes, no, I don't know. Not a chance. I can't do that. It's just too private. That was his time with God. And our time with God, our time in prayer, is both private, and then we come together, and it's corporate. But it's that time. But even in the midst of the corporate time, we have those little carve-outs exactly of private right. time. Exactly right, yeah. Well, and we, we cover ourselves with that tallit. We, we see some of the same ideas in the traditions around how we handle a Torah scroll. Right. Right? The Torah is in the ark mm-hmm. until it's ready to come out. And when you open the ark, it's still dressed, right? The Torah is, co- is still covered. And then we undress it long enough to read from it, and as soon as we're done reading, we Just roll it back up, and we, you know, I mean, you know, even in between readers, we we leave Cut. the um, the dress laying on top of the scroll, and then as soon as the Torah uh, tor- um, reading is done, we dress the scroll right, and 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 it's this idea that 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 um, the Torah represents kind of that, you know, it's it, precious that precious. Thing. Holy yeah. um, presence of Hashem, yeah, however you want to describe that, 
and you don't just leave it laying around like casually. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's like Moses right. One of the uh, we get towards the end here. One of the things also you see in the different types of materials is uh, their their purpose, their their application. I guess their their features. The sages point out that copper, which is the less the least of the materials, um, is uh, has two interesting qualities about it. One is that it gets dirty, and the other is that it's washable, which I think is really cool because um, the sages note that like it's dirty and, and it's washable. washable. You can clean it. You can clean mm -hmm. copper. Um, and so the, the, uh, this concept is cool because the sages point out that like the copper then is sort of a picture of the people of Israel. They can get dirty and they can be washed. They can be forgiven, cleansed through repentance. Wasn't that amazing then? That what is the where is the copper most appear? Well, it's in the washing basin, which makes sense, and the Outside altar. Where the people are. And the altar, because what's the altar all about? The altar is about we're dirty, and we need to be washed. We need to be covered, cleansed by Hashem. And the way that he did it for us. Amen. And ultimately that's what Messiah does for us too. We come in, we're dirty, he washes us. And they, they symbolic of the co copper right there. Um, last copper is also fire. Oh yeah, exactly. Because it ties in with the snake. There's snake. a lot of interesting... And, cop and copper can withstand, withstand incredible heat. Well, which makes sense for the altar. Um, last little thing here that I thought was kind of cool. So if you look at the entire dimensions of the, of the tabernacle, it's about 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and then of course 100 cubits long is rectangle. Golden rectangle. Well, it, well, yeah, with all the, and all the white linen, you know, this is the entire, the entire process, the whole courtyard that we just read about at the very end of our portion. What's funny about this, and it's about five cubits high, that's what this is, it is five cubits high. Um, what's interesting about this is if you're reading this, you might be thinking to yourself, where else have I seen dimensions before? Because this sounds familiar. So, you flip back a couple, a couple of chapters, more than a couple, go back to Noah. What does God say? God says build an ark, a boat, big boat. And interestingly enough, I thought this was really funny, the width is identical. They're both 50 cubits wide. The difference is that the ark is 300 cubits long, and it's 30 cubits high. Okay, so mathematicians, how many tabernacles can you fit in the ark? 18, which interestingly enough, 18, going to Gematria, is high. It's life. That's kind of cool. So the size of the ark, which saved life, is high times the tabernacle. That's right. As it says, it is a tree of life for those who grasp it. Um, so, any other final comments? He's the best computer programmer ever. close us out in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, the opportunity to come together and study it. We thank you, Father, that Moshe Rabbeinu was faithful in all that you showed him and gave him to do, as is Messiah. Father, we pray for the uh, quick return of your Messiah, Yeshua. We pray that you would find faith in us when he returns. Bless our day, bless the time, and bless each one. We pray of Bashem Yeshua HaMashiach Adonai.